Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. My guest this week is Kathleen Norris. She is a poet and an author, and she is going to present Beekner Institute's annual lectureship at First Presbyterian Church in Bristol, Tennessee, January 26th. More information about that can be found at religionforlife.com. Kathleen Norris is an award-winning poet and author. She has authored such books as Dakota, A Spiritual Geography, The Cloister Walk, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, and her latest book is Acedia and Me. Welcome, Kathleen. And you, you are in Honolulu, is that right? Yeah, I'm back where I grew up, where I went to high school. I never expected to be living here again, but just family considerations kind of drew me out here and have kept me here. Well, your geography has taken you all over the place uh, in kind of interesting places, uh, Honolulu, Lemon, South Dakota, Manhattan. Can you uh, give us just a little bit of your, of your story and how these places tie together? Well, actually, I was born in, uh, my, in Washington, D.C. My family lived in Virginia because my father was an assistant conductor and an orchestrator for the Navy Band in Washington. He was, uh, had four kids and on a musician's salary decided the Navy, during World War II, he joined the Navy, and that was a good way to, to uh, be a musician but also be able to have a family and, and uh, support, you know, support a family. So anyway, I was born in Washington, D.C., and then when I was about 10, we moved to Hawaii when it was still a territory. It wasn't even a state yet. Uh, we moved to Hawaii in the late 1950s because he took the band at Pearl Harbor. So early on, I, I had a pretty wide um, view of, of the world, in a sense, or at least America. And then I went to college in Vermont. Uh, ended up working in New York City for about six years after college. And then this odd thing that, that just sort of came up. Um, my grandparents had lived in western South Dakota uh, for over 60 years um, in this little town called Lemon. And uh, when they died, the normal thing would have been for my mother to just sell their house in town and sell the farmland. And for some reason, I said, you know, let me try to go out there and live with my husband. And so we did that. My husband and I lived there for 25 years. And then um, he became very ill, and there were a number of other family considerations. My parents were aging. They had retired in Honolulu. And so about 12 years ago, my husband and I came back to Hawaii, a place where I never really expected to live again. There's been this kind of a loop sort of coast to coast and out into the middle of the Pacific. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Kathleen Norris, and she is the author of a number of books. She's a poet and has written a number of nonfiction books as well, including Dakota, A Spiritual Geography, uh, The Cloister Walk, uh, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, and Acedia, and Me. And she is uh, talking with me by phone from uh, her home in Honolulu, Hawaii. And she is going to be speaking for the Beekner Institute, giving the Beekner Lecture. Can you tell us a little bit how you got involved uh, with the Beekner Institute? Well, when they were starting up, um, kind of a bold enterprise for a small college, they were starting this institute, and they wanted to have a lecture series and everything. And they asked me if I would be on the board, and I was happy to do it because Beekner is just such a wonderful writer um, and a preacher. And so I, I, I loved his work. So I said yes. And then a few years ago when Ron Hansen, the novelist, was their speaker, I went and introduced him, and I got to see Bristol and, and the college 
Tell us a little bit about um, life in Lemon, South Dakota. I grew up in, in Montana, in western Montana, but my uh, family, uh, my brother and and uh, my parents now live in eastern Montana, Glendive, Montana. And when people come and visit that, we think that's there's just there's just nothing there. But it takes a while uh, before you start to see things. It, was that your experience too, living in South Dakota? Well, I I had spent my summers there when I was a child. So to my eye, there was always plenty of stuff going on in that landscape. You know, if you just drive by fast, you're not going to see it. But the pheasants and the native grasses and flowers and everything, I was quite familiar with it just from my childhood summers. But um, I had never lived there before full time. Um, and it was interesting to see my husband, who was raised outside New York City and went to high school in New York, and uh, um, when he came out there, because a lot of people on the East Coast and the West Coast, too, just think of that as flyover country. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing there. I mean, that, it's the middle of nowhere. I mean, I think even Newsweek called it the Western Dakotas, America's outback. And there is some truth to that because it's physically a very isolated place it's remote. There aren't a lot of, um, you know, our, I think the nearest uh, fast food restaurant, the nearest interstate highway is over 90 miles from Lemon. So it is, it does remain fairly remote and isolated. But my husband was quick to, um, to observe, you know, because he was, he, was he was a writer also, and observed the fact that, you know, people say this land is empty, but it's not. It's quite busy. The, there's, there's farmland, there's pasture, there's all these things going on, and 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 uh, physically, it's Western Dakotas are really quite beautiful. There, um, it's not the dramatic landscape that you get farther west, but it's not flat either. It's an ancient seabed, and so you have these rolling hills and buttes. And on the top of the butte, you will find fossilized seashells and nautilus shells and things like that. I mean, it's a fascinating landscape that. Very, very few people know about, and the towns out there are very, very, very small, I mean, um, and getting smaller, um, but once you've been sort of um, hooked on, on, the, on the beauty of the prairie landscape, um, you keep wanting to return to it. I think it, the world can be divided into people who understand that the prairie can be beautiful and people who just want to get out of it as fast as they can. They don't see anything there. I know uh, every year, or, or sometimes more than that, I have to go back and get in touch with the stars again um, back in uh, eastern Montana, and, and, and which would of course be uh, western Dakotas as well. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's a complete show in the sky. Yeah, it's so, um, it's, all you have to do is drive about a mile up from, from a little town and just get off the road, turn off your lights, and, and all of a sudden you're going to see more stars than you've ever seen in your life. And that was one of the things we did with friends would visit from, say, Chicago or New York, and they said they've never seen that many stars. In fact, sometimes at night, sometimes at a very clear night, you can see so well that you can see satellites. You can see them and you can time them, that they're, they're rotating around the Earth, and, and, and in another hour or something they're going to be coming back. I mean, it's, it's just this brilliant sky that a lot of people don't even realize is there because if, if you're in a city, you're only going to see just a few, a few of those stars. Was there a sense in which that landscape then um, kind of connected you spiritually? Well, it, it helped me return to my spiritual roots in the Christian faith, which I never mm-hmm. expected to, that to happen. Um, 
my grandmother and my grandfather had been members of this little church down the street from us for over 60 years. In fact, my grandfather had donated the land where they built the church in, in the 60s. But I, I went to Sunday school with my grandmother when I was a kid out there. But then as I, as I entered adolescence and, and started to have more doubts and sort of intellectual objections to the Christian religion, all that kind of stuff, which is normal, I think that's part of the maturing process, I kind of left the church behind and I went to Bennington College in Vermont, which is in a, a very secular environment. I mean, it's a good college. It produces a lot of artists and dancers and writers and, and everything, but it's very, very secular. So I just sort of, sort of thought religion was behind me. But when I moved back to that little town, um, I started going to what I still considered my grandmother's church um, and got involved with that community and began to really appreciate and understand the Christian faith in a whole new way, uh, sort of as a community and um, of so something that I really needed, and, and I didn't know that I needed it. So that was the biggest uh, thing for me out there was um, just rediscovering my roots, in a sense. And, of course, uh, your, your, uh, another one of your books is Amazing Grace, a vocabulary of faith, in which you, a delightful book in which you talk about the scary words of Christianity that you had to come to terms with again. And I, I thought it was so gracious the way you, you did it. I mean, you just didn't stop when you found scary words like justification and sin. You tried to find ways to explore them and uh, find new meaning in them. Well, as a writer, you know, I, I like to struggle with words. And if there's a word that really bothers me, I don't just reject it. I say, wait a minute, why am I reacting emotionally to this word? What does it signify to me? It means something. And certainly with the vocabulary of Christian faith, I mean, sometimes I'd come home from a worship service and I would just feel exhausted, like I'd been bombarded with all these words that I didn't have very little access to. And it was very discouraging at, at times. But I also um, am a fighter, and I thought, well, I'm going to stay, stay in here and finding out what some of those words mean, but more, more deeply, um, and I think more importantly, not just what they mean, but what the experience of that word is. Because I think once you, you can name an experience and connect it to a, a word that might seem abstract or theological, like salvation or redemption or uh, everything, but once you have some experience of it, then that word becomes part of you. It's not an. It's not an out there. It's not a word that's just out there, abstract, remote. And then there were other discoveries. Like there's a passage in the Bible that used to. I hated. I used to hated it. Uh, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm -hmm. And that always. I always found that pretty depressing because you know. I mean, how can that be? And then I found out that the word perfect is basically a bad translation from a word that means ripe, fully grown, mature whole, entire, I mean, it has a whole different meaning than what we think of as perfect or perfectionism. Be whole, be healed, be, be ripe and mature. Well, that, that's a whole different um, ballgame. That's really something that I can aspire to, and I can see the beauty of it, rather than just rejecting it, saying, I don't want to be perfect. I'm not Martha Stewart. I can't do that. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that happens with a lot of words, too. In fact, you talk about uh, that the, the word believe really isn't uh, necessarily, from you look at the etymology of the word, isn't necessarily about intellectual assent. It's, uh, it's, it has yeah, more it's of a heart. What you, give, what you give your heart to is what you believe. 
Yeah. And when I read that, I went, I found that, you know, I, and I did a lot of research for that book. I had to, but it was, it was partly from my own experience. I said, I, if I'm going to, you know, try to come to terms with this Christian faith, I really need to explore these words, find out what they mean. And when I found that, yeah, belief is what you give your heart to. Well, that is a revelation because mm-hmm. then you look around and you think, well, some people really believe in money. Mm. Some people really believe in power. Um, you know, some people really believe in shopping. They give their whole heart to that. They cut out all the coupons in the paper, and they're at the sales every week. So you think, what do you give your heart to? Is it your family? Is it your faith? Is it, what is it? You know, and, and, you know, just the words really began to open up as I started looking into them. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Kathleen Norris, and she's on the phone with me from her home in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, She's the author of a number of wonderful books, including books of poetry, uh, such as Falling Off, The Middle of the World, The Year of Common Things, Little Girls in Church, as well as some nonfiction books, including uh, Dakota, A Spiritual Geography, The Cloister Walk, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, and Acedia and Me, and she's recently been a part of a DVD project called Embracing a Life of Meaning, Kathleen Norris on Discovering What Matters, and that's a DVD series that uh, you're the presenter, and then people can use that as a study guide to uh, uh, go further in developing their own faith. Yeah, that's a nice uh, thing. In fact, my church in Honolulu, my Episcopal church I go to, has been using it. It's, I think, it's five or six segments, and what, what the... Uh, what the producers do is they get people from a local church congregation. In this case, it was a, a, a church in Denver. They get about six or seven people to respond to my talk, and then we have a conversation about the issue, and then the video ends, and there's a, there's a little booklet, you know, with the leader can ask some questions and things like that. But it, it's really a very interesting way to approach uh, different subjects. I know they've had Walter Brueggemann, they're going to have Diana Butler Bass, other theologians and church historians and everything. Um, it's a really, um, the people at my church really enjoyed it. And I was able to attend a couple of the sessions, so that, that was fun for everybody because I was up there on the screen and I was there in person, so it was kind of fun. But it, it's, yeah, I, I was impressed. I, the, the idea sounded kind of strange to me when they asked me to, to present, you know, make presentations on, on this topic over five sessions, but it really worked out very well. You know, discovering what matters, you can't really give a lecture around something like that unless you've been bounced around by life a little bit, can you? Um, Can you tell me how your life has has, um, shaped you to help you discover what matters for you? Well, I guess um, it's pretty normal stuff. I mean, seeing my parents age and uh, being very close to them in the last 10, 12 years of their, of their lives as they aged and they, they've passed away now. Um, seeing that and also the fact that my husband had some pretty serious medical issues, mm-hmm. uh, problems over the years. Uh, I used to say to doctors, you know, by the time he died, he had enough medical history for six people. And to some extent, that's true. And it's amazing when you're dealing with critical illness, how what what matters to you becomes very very clear um and you know the sense of spending time with people as they're aging or as they're seriously ill that is the most valuable thing in the world and everything else falls by the way so i mean just life experiences kind of teach you uh, i think what you know what matters and in my case i think it was 
it was caregiving in a sense for about 15 years really between my husband and my parents um, taking that on which I never expected to do but life just presented me with that challenge and trying to meet that and actually it, it, it might sound a little stark but I think probably my greatest accomplishment in the last and over those 15 years was helping these three people whom I love very much helping them to have a good death hmm. um, not with a super amount of medical intervention not with fear and all of that but just helping them uh, with that passage in the promotional video for the series about embracing a life of meaning Kathleen Norris on discovering what matters uh, you use the phrase spiritual but not religious and you talk a- about community and, and as a as a minister, I, you, I wanted to say yes, thank you, because you talked about uh, an experience of joining a church that wasn't perfect. And I thought how valuable that was uh, to be able to understand a deeper level of what it means to be a community together. And, and, and in the response to the last answer to my question about how important it is to have those relationships and that experience of life. Yes, and I think the most valuable thing to me now, and of course this has been years ago now, but I can look back, that church that I joined, it wasn't only not perfect, it was really struggling through some of the darkest times in its history. And um, there was a faction of people in the church who were making life miserable for the clergy couple who were the pastors, who were my very good friends. So it was really a very difficult time to join the church, and I, I really sort of looked at that as God's sense of humor, that this is when exactly when I needed to join. So, But the good thing was that I, I had to join with no illusions. I wasn't joining a perfect community. None of the people were perfect. It was a mess, but that's when I had to join, and um, that taught me a lot about the nature of um, a Christian the nature of Christian community and how we hang in there together. It's almost like you're Noah's Ark on these stormy seas. You're hanging together, um, trying to make your way through with faith and hope and all of that, but it's, it's very difficult. It's not easy. It's not perfect. And I think, you know, I used to, I used to probably define myself as spiritual but not religious. And in my early, when I was in my 20s, I really wasn't attracted to church at all. But now, often when I, when I meet people who say that about themselves, what they're really saying to me and, and what their lives demonstrate is they're exploring some form of spirituality, but it's, usually, it's often alone. They, they're really resisting joining communities of, of faith, whatever faith, um, New Age or whatever. They do, they're doing their practice and all of that stuff alone, and they're resisting in a sense, it's part of the narcissism of our culture. What? A community? Other people I, that I might have to um, accommodate or I might have to um, make compromise with? I don't want to do that. I want to be off on my own pursuing some kind of spiritual thing. Um, yeah, there's a there's a joke uh, that I heard that's probably a true joke. It may have come from you. I'm not sure. But it was a monk was asked, what's the hardest thing about being a monk? And he said, well, other monks. And I, it's, no, actually, I, it's actually from Alec Guinness's autobiography because he he spent a lot of time oh. on retreats in monasteries in England, and he said that, that that's a little encounter that he had when a monk asked him, "What do you think the hardest thing about monastic life is?" And he said, "Other monks." And uh, that is, and and the same thing with what's the hardest thing about being in in a Christian church? Other Christians. 
Absolutely. Right here up the well, thank you so much for that reference. I, I, I knew the phrase, but I didn't know uh, Alec, Alec Guinness. Okay. Yeah, it's and, a delightful and, autobiography, yeah. And, you, and that's uh, also where you learned some community itself in the Benedictine Monastery uh, not far from Lemon. Well, 90 miles, which out in the western Dakotas doesn't count. I mean, oh, that's, that's your yeah, neighbor. Uh, that's right. But, yeah, the, the Benedictine uh, order is, uh, they're really based on community. They, they look at the, at the Book of Acts and the Bible that, you know, the, the first disciples held their goods in common. Um, they tried to have a certain kind of communal life, and, and Christian monasticism um, has tried to emulate that, and Benedictines in particular, I mean, they make a vow to uh, not only their religious order, but to stay in that particular community for the rest of their lives. And that, and, and did that uh, influence you in terms of how, and, and involving in, in Protestant types of communities as well? Well, I, I began to realize that, you know, I couldn't join a monastery. I was Protestant female these were this was a community of roman catholic men celibate men mm -hmm. so i couldn't join their community so probably if i was going to be a christian i had to join a church just an ordinary garden variety church and that's what i did but it was actually the benedictines who sort of led me to that decision uh looking at their lives and what how they were living christian community made me realize i couldn't do this on my own i needed to join a community a congregation and then the other thing, which I thought was marvelously ironic, is that they really, the Benedictines, really reintroduced me to the Bible. Because what I began to experience when I went on a monastery retreat, it's like you're immersed in Scripture all day long. You're hearing it. You're not necessarily reading it, um, because you go to church about five times, four or five times a day, or seven times a day sometimes. And sometimes the service is 15 minutes, sometimes it's a half an hour, but most of it consists of sitting there and either reciting psalm or listening to scripture being read. So for a Protestant like myself, this was a very comfortable environment. I was getting lots and lots of Bible. And their method of meditative reading of the Bible and, and really reflecting on the Bible um, really changed the way I, I look at the Bible. Um, now if I'm asked to preach or do something like that, I'm overjoyed because I get to play with the scriptures. I get to meditate on a passage and maybe something will illuminate and, and I'll be able to write a sermon based on this. But it was the, it was the, the ancient Benedictine method of what they call holy reading, um, sort of meditating on scripture that, that opened that door for me. And that opened it because many, for many people, Scripture really is a closed door and a closed book. It's been used sometimes as, as a hammer or so literalized or something. But uh, uh, reading it with a poet's eyes can also give it, make it be more of a heart book than a, a head book. Yeah, I think so. And, and one of the things about, you know, sort of that slow meditative reading, you're not speed reading, you're, you're actually slowing down a lot is that the Bible opens up for you that, that passage stories and passages that you thought you knew all of a sudden will become, oh, I think I see something else here, or some meaning that is very personal for you might come clear. And it's very exciting. It's, 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 a, wonderful, um, it's a wonderful way to read Scripture and to try to, I think, for myself and a lot of other people, try to let go of what you think you know about it the stories that seem familiar and and you can't escape that 
say, in a Benedictine monastery because they're reciting the psalms, it's 150 psalms. They recite them over and over again over a period of uh, maybe six weeks. So you're getting this stuff that's so boring and so familiar. You think, oh, my gosh. But all of a sudden, a passage from the psalms that you knew will all of a sudden hit you like a ton of bricks, like bang, like you're being hit over the head, like, look at this. This means something to you, and you didn't see it. You know, it, it, that experience is very, very common, um, but also very wonderful. My guest is Kathleen Norris. Her latest book um, in 2008 is uh, Acedia and Me, and I do want to take just a few minutes, uh, Kathleen, to talk a little bit about that. Can you tell us a little bit about Acedia? Yeah, it's, a, it's an ancient word for a very common uh, condition. Um, and you have, I, this came out of my interest in monastic history that uh, before we had the seven deadly sins, the ancient monks, like fourth century monks in the Middle East, uh, Christian monks, had developed a way of looking at their own desires and temptations, what they called passion. And they said, you know, there are eight really bad ones, and the worst of them are pride and anger and acedia. And of course, we all know pride and anger, that's just part of our human condition. But acedia is also, and, and it's, the word has a really wild and interesting history. It's been kind of submerged so that even highly educated people often don't know, know the term. Um, it sometimes is equated with laziness or sloth, but it's actually a much deeper thing than that. It's a combination of restlessness and boredom and kind of not caring. The word itself, the word acedia, actually means you know not caring or being unable to care, but not caring to the extent that you no longer care that you don't care. Mm -hmm. And uh, Frederick Buechner has an interesting um, comment on boredom. Uh, he said, to, bo to be bored is to turn down cold whatever life happens to be offering you at the moment. And that's kind of what acedia is. It's a very cold uh, emotion. But when you look at the symptoms of acedia, um, boredom, restlessness, inability to make commitments, um, depression, sadness is always part of it. You look around and you think, you know, I think this is a modern problem. We, hate, we see it all around us, but if we don't know the word for it, we're really in trouble, so maybe I should write about it. And it, actually, I was collecting material and doing research on that book for um, over 20 years um, because I found the subject so interesting and so compelling. Yes, and I, I connected with it a great deal. You quoted Maurice Sendak's book, Pierre, um, and Pierre who doesn't care. And I just thought that was a, a perfect example, too, of uh, uh, just not being able to connect with what's real, not even wanting to make your bed because it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, that, that and, and that's a marvelous, that little Sendak book is a wonderful, it's a tiny little book, it's a children's book, mm -hmm. but it's just this little boy who starts saying it to everything that's asked of him, I don't care. And pretty soon a lion comes up and says, well, can I eat you? And he says, I don't care. And so he gets eaten by the lion, but of course it does have a happy ending, but, but it, it eventually has a happy ending because he decides that maybe he does care after all and his mother and his father care for him. I mean, it, well, probably no one except Maurice Sendak could have done a children's book that basically has Acedia as the theme. But that's a, a delightful little book. Kathleen Norris has been my guest on Religion for Life. Thank you and uh, all the best to you in your adventures. Thank you. Kathleen Norris will present Beekner Institute's annual lectureship at First Presbyterian Church in Bristol, January 26, 2013. 
For more information about that, go to religionforlife.com. My name is John Schuck, and I am the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. More information about my congregation can be found at fpcelizabethton.org. Upcoming shows, podcasts, and other interesting articles can be found at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. Be well.